University. Many years ago, uh, God called me uh, into the ministry at North Central. He first directed me there. My parents encouraged me. They said, they, I wanted to do something else. They said, go to one year of Bible college, your, your choice. And I chose to go, directed by the Lord, I really believe, to go to North Central University. You heard my story a couple of weeks ago. I shared a little bit of that. And it was there one or one and a half months into that that God called me into the ministry. My life has never been the same, and North Central had a big part in that. And now, after about 88 years uh, in the history of, of, uh, of North Central, uh, a lot of lives have been changed. And it's a real delight this morning to have here as our guest, uh, uh, the leader of this great institution, uh, Scott Hagen. Scott and his wife, Karen, uh, have been are now in their second year at North Central, have been pastors for many, many years before that. In fact, I think if you were to ask them, they would say they're more pastors than anything. It's, 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 it's who you are. When you do this a very long time, it just becomes a part of, of the fiber of your being. And these are wonderful people. Uh, I've known them for a sh- relatively short time, but wonderful people, Scott and Karen Hagen. Would you please welcome Scott as he comes this morning? God bless you, Scott. Thank you, brother. Great to see you. Thank you so much, Pastor. Good to see everybody here. And uh, what a joy, honestly, to be here with uh, the Wowmans. And uh, also, their daughter on the second row is on the cover of our magazine this month. Uh, Kristen, great to see you. So proud of you. She left right before I got there, but I think I was her last interview um, in the spring of 16, was that, or somewhere in there, um, when she was the editor of our newspaper. And then she just took a little short quantum leap from the northerner to Washington, D.C. So I use her as an example that you can go anywhere in the world from North Central University. And uh, congratulations on all the recent events that are happening with you professionally. But we're proud of you. And, of course, Pastor, thank you for your kindness uh, to give up your pulpit on a Sunday morning right here in the fall. Uh, These are precious spaces for a local pastor, but uh, so honored to be here. Uh, My wife is also an ordained Assemblies of God pastor and uh, leader, and she speaks all over the country. But today she just, uh, here is my uh, right hand, and uh, she's on the front row. She hates being introduced and doing the, you know, the beauty pageant wave, uh, as she calls it. Um, But anyway, I do want you to stand up, honey. This is my wife, Karen, and she is a great, 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 great leader and uh, deep, rich heritage in the Assemblies of God. She comes from the Wilkerson family. Her cousin is Dave Wilkerson, the founder of Teen Challenge and all of those things. And uh, my dad worked in a lumber mill. So I, we, we don't really have the same background. We have some very fascinating coming together of our family uh, history. Had a chance to share in the Connections Sunday School class. I don't know if you call it Sunday School, but um, um, but with some great folks from the church here, and then the guy who shook my hand, I, w- I looked at my clock, he was out there for an hour today greeting people nice and early, and there's nothing more fantastic or fabulous than a local church that is working well, flourishing and thriving, and I've heard lots about the Aberdeen Church, I've been to a few spots in uh, South Dakota, I've been to the Corn Palace, right, right, is that in Mitchell? Had that experience, have not made it over to Mount Rushmore yet, but I'm going to make it there shortly and been to North Dakota a few times. Uh, But we are loving our life in the Midwest. We lived in Michigan for a little while, so we were prepared for a little bit of the weather change from California to to, uh, the Midwest, but the Lord has blessed it a great deal. Hey, I want to introduce real quickly a little bit more of my family. This actually, you saw the uh, the grown-up version of my wife, but I want to show you my favorite picture of Karen real fast. If you could just show that real quick, that first photo. That's my favorite picture of Karen. 
Karen up there. That's probably um, 1964. She's born in 62. Uh, I think she's probably two, two and a half there. Uh, probably Easter. I love the little matching purse, the little, the little bent wrist, the matching little outfit. Her mother always dressed her uh, just perfect like that. But it's the gleam in her eye and that smile. Look at that gleam in her eye. She's seen something. She has seen the future. I think the Lord was revealing to Karen uh, what was waiting for her. And I think she saw it prophetically, and that's why that gleam and that smile is in her eye. I think the Lord was showing her this. I think this is what the Lord, next picture, if you will. I think that's what God was showing uh, Karen. Um, now, why do you do that? Why do, why do you have to laugh like that, friends? There's, that's also about 1964, I think. Uh, that's Easter Sunday at the Fresno Airport, if my mom is accurate in her memory. My little twisty velvet shorts there. I don't think my brother was too thrilled about his sweater. Um, but whatever day that was, I was told to stand still for the picture, obviously. I was grumpy. I was hungry. But I will tell you, you see, my dad did work in lumber mills, and he used to go up in the mountains and, and cut the trees down with a chainsaw. And I'm pretty sure that is what he used on my haircut that, that week was uh, that chainsaw. But I tell people now, put some skinny jeans on that, and that's a worship leader in an Assembly God church right now. That, that, that haircut actually works. I actually look at a lot of those haircuts every, every Friday in chapel now at the university. So anyway, let's go to the next one. We fell in love 19 years later. That's us, 1980, 81, with about 50 pounds of hair on our head right there. For those who are um, 56, for us in our age group, people say, man, you guys look like Donnie and Marie uh, Osmond right there. But the problem is you can't tell which one's Marie. That's the problem with that picture right there because we both look pretty much the same. But uh, then that becomes this over 37 years, and it's amazing how time flies. And this is our beautiful family um, uh, that is kind of spread out around the world. First thing, uh, my dog Jack in my arms, he's not looking at the photographer because he's had enough of this. Up until three years before this, he was the center of the universe. We had no grandkids, and now he has to share all this space. I don't think my dog likes uh, all these kids uh, around anymore, but that's my beautiful wife, as you met. And then uh, our daughter in the front row um, with the little girl in her arms, that's uh, Jocelyn. She went to North Central, graduated in 2007 with her business degree from North Central. Had her life changed at that great school. That's really where my affection and my connection with NCU happened uh, was during her tenure there when we were in Michigan. She was headed to Azusa Pacific University and visited a, a preview day with a friend and she came back and said, Dad, I want to go to this school. Uh, she was so deeply touched by the presence of God, the chapel experience at the university, studied business, had a great, great educational experience at North Central. She's married. Her husband's not in the picture, actually, not because we don't want him there, though I have one daughter and three boys. All four are married now. And I will tell you this, when your boys get married, it's like an addition to the family. But when your daughter gets married, it's like an abduction. I, I can't explain it. It's a totally different emotion uh, when your daughter's abducted from the family. And so she was abducted by a man from Brazil. He's hard to hate because he loves the Lord. He's a great pastor, but he took her back to the nation of Brazil. He just simply wasn't on this trip. Uh, we tried to Photoshop him in, but it didn't look quite right. So that's my daughter, their little baby, Olivia and she's pregnant with her second uh, child now. Well, the son to your left over there, Tyler and his wife, Nicole, little Elias and Gemma. We had a real scare this last eight days. Um, he swallowed three refrigerator magnets uh, about a week and a half ago, 
and um, it was discovered after about three days of vomiting, and the magnets had moved through his intestine, small intestine, his colon. They found each other, the magnets, who knew, and they tore holes all through his abdomen, his colon, his intestine. So he had major surgery a week ago, eight days ago, to repair his small intestine, remove part of it, and to repair his colon. Praise the Lord, they went home yesterday. It's been quite an ordeal. We've been back and forth to Oakland, California. They're planting a new church in Oakland, California. Their first Sunday's in about uh, two months. But we love them. Little Elias, uh, he's, a, he's a treasure. He calls Karen Gaga. Uh, isn't that cute, Gaga? Until uh, he turned to me and called me Kaka. And, and so I said, wait, 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 wait. I know enough Spanish. That's not going to fly. I know, no, you're not calling me caca. You're not, we're, so we got a speech therapist. We got him up to Bampa now, but we're, we're doing much better. Little Gemma. And then my next one is Kramer on the front row. Amazing story. Um, uh, he married that young lady this past year. She, they met. Uh, he didn't tell me at first when they met because he, he said, Dad, I, I go, who's this young lady? He goes, oh, Dad, I wasn't, I don't know yet. We've had coffee because she has a past. Uh, and I said, well, son, what? what do you think I do for a living? I go, that's why they call us pastors. You do know that because we help people reconcile their past. We're great at this. I said, he goes, dad, she has a big past. I said, okay, give me your story. She goes, well, she's a single mom twice. I said, okay, tell me her story. She got pregnant at 16, had a little boy. She got pregnant again at 19. She had just found the Lord at 19. And she got pregnant again and was scared and confused and went to have an abortion. She went uh, to Planned Parenthood, took the RU46 pills uh, to abort the baby, got into the front seat of the car, began to tremble, uh, uncontrollably weep, realizing she had just done something horrible. And she tried to throw up the RU46 tablet. She take two uh, sets of pills. The first one kills the child. The second set of pills causes you to pass the child through, give birth to the child while you're sitting on a toilet. It's a hor- horrific, untold story of how this thing actually happens. And so she took the first set to kill the child and was scared. And she, she, she Googled real quick a way to stop it because she couldn't throw it up. And so she found out there was an experimental injection you could take in the Bay Area. She ran there uh, as fast as she could. Uh, she was... With, Outside the two-hour window, she took the injection, and lo and behold, the heartbeat remained. Planned Parenthood mocked her for this. She said, you're going to give birth to a beast, uh, a deformed child. How dare you do this? And But the child continued to grow, and she prayed out, cried out to God. Nine months later, a perfectly healthy little fella named Zachy was born, that little guy right there. And so uh, Rebecca is only the second recorded Um, second recorded female in the United States, if you Google her name, to have an abortion reversal. I'd never even heard of this term in my life. I'd never even heard of such a phrase in my life. And now uh, she is Satan's worst nightmare. Uh, She went to a great Christian university. They discipled her, cared for her. My son met her. They got married in April. We've adopted these two boys. And she is probably uh, America's number one millennial. She's 25, pro-life speaker. She just spoke with the vice president. She speaks all over the United States. And uh, she has been working with numerous uh, uh, state legislatures to have now introduced this um, um, medication that you can take within 24 hours of the RU46 treatment if you have what's called abortion regret, which the world will not tell you any of this. But 14 states now have changed and now have made this available, and she's being used by God in a great way to bring healing, compassion, and love to millennials uh, who've walked through uh, abortion. So we're very proud of Becky. She's uh, she's going to be speaking at the university this year. And then my youngest son, Spence, the tall one there, super tall kid, uh, he 
he is uh, my big kid, um, and he was a great college football player, was headed to the NFL. He played tight end for the University of California in the Pac-12, caught a pass against the dreaded Ohio State Buckeyes. Sorry if there's any Buckeye fans here. Uh, we were playing them a few years ago down at Ohio State, caught a pass, got hit in the knee, and it ended his football career, tore his leg, broke it back 90 degrees at the knee, laid his calf flat to the ground backwards. It was a pretty brutal injury. But he's been coaching the last four years, and now he's the new FCA Fellowship of Christian Athletes director there in Sacramento, and God is using him to lead young people to Christ right and left. So anyway, that's our little family, and uh, we have three more grandkids on the way, so our ninth one is on the way now. We went from zero to nine in just uh, uh, three and a half years. So zero to nine in three and a half years. So we've lost our mind. Uh, we're broke. There was no empty nesting. I don't know what that was. It was a brief moment. Uh, and now we, we, we love those kids. So anyway, hey, this morning, we're going to turn to Genesis 12 in just a few moments. Um, and I just want to redeem my few minutes here in the pulpit. But I really felt in my heart um, a passage of scripture that's not in my notes during worship. And for many, many years, I did not preach with, I'm old school, I didn't preach with PowerPoint. PowerPoint was introduced well into like 20 years into my ministry. We used our Bibles and we used, um, and so now people call like six months ahead of time. They say, now what are you speaking on? I need your notes. I go, that's sick. that conference is six months from now. You want my notes? I said, the Holy Spirit doesn't even know I'm coming yet. Um, what, what, if, what if the Holy Spirit wants me to change it? And so I've never really reconciled. I don't have a good relationship with PowerPoint. First time I used it in 1998, true story. I'm standing in front of 1,000 people. We're doing an, a series on the end times. And we had PowerPoint, and we had the technology, so we were going to do our first Sunday with PowerPoint. And so I sent it to the tech guy, and he was all excited. We loaded it. And we were doing a series on the end times, and I was preaching on Satan that day and doing a kind of a series on the devil and Satan and, and that part of uh, the end times, Revelation. And little did I know, I'm standing up there, we put up the first slide, and somehow it had spell-checked everything and turned Satan into Stan. And so for the next half hour, I was doing a deep dive on uh, the demise of Stan, the deception of Stan, the lake of fire is for Stan. And uh, there was a guy there that day visiting named Stan. And so he, uh, we became great friends awful quick. He goes, I didn't know I was going to be the topic of the, I said, I didn't either, Stan. Uh, so PowerPoint and I got off to kind of a lousy start. So, But we'll, we'll show some PowerPoint here in a moment. But in worship today, I was drawn back to a text that I read, I've read many, many times, but I, 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 it captured me this last summer. I was going to Nepal on a mission trip, and I was somewhere over the Pacific Ocean in the middle of the night, and I had committed to read through the book of Deuteronomy on this particular mission trip. I said, I'm going to pick the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to read it real slow, maybe read it through a couple times. And I was reading in the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy, and I saw something I had never seen. 400 years before the first king of Israel, before... Um, uh, the time of Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, Moses gave a job description for what a king does his first day in the office. And I thought, what a fascinating text this is. Hundreds of years before the first king of Israel, Moses gave instruction for the king. If you so choose a king, then he said, here's what a king must do. And it really pierced my heart and reminded me of some simplicity of my faith that I had just either forgotten or neglected, and it really arrested something inside my heart. 
And he talks about guidelines for a king beginning in verse 14 of chapter 17. And he talks about the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or gold for himself. He's going to steward millions, but it's not personal millions. And so he's just saying that, that the king has to guard the stewardship of the power, the privilege, and the privilege of his leadership life, the natural economy of being a king is going to put you in close proximity to things that could destroy the heart of the king. So he gave a prescription for how the king could protect himself. He said when he sits on the throne as king, the first thing he must do, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the, Levit of the, the, the Levitical priest, verse 18. His first day he was to take out a scroll and copy the first five books. Now, every scholar and theologian believes it wasn't just simply these small instructions of Deuteronomy 17, but really the entire Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the, the, the first five books that we hold in our hand, that the king of Israel was to take his first day or days, and he had to carefully, in his own hand, he couldn't delegate this. He had to write out the first five books of the Bible. That's what the king had to do first before he got to be king or do what kings do, write out the scripture. That the transmission of truth was to be tedious. That's why I love the university. It slows life down. Our students are caught between seed and speed right now. And they want everything. They're trying to leapfrog and trying to learn all the tricks of the trade without the tools. And speed is the new brilliance. But the problem with speed is that the transmission and the maturation of the proven life to the promising life, or in this case, what is eternally true, being able to integrate with my thoughts and opinions of what leadership is as a king, was to go through this slow process of writing it out by hand. Then it says he must always keep that copy with him. He's to write out the first five books, and the king was supposed to carry it around for the rest of his life. And he had to read it out loud daily as long as he lives. Verse 19. He had to write it out by hand, keep it with him, and read it out loud every day. That's what a king does. First thing on the resume. First thing on the job description, I should say. It says that way he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he's above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations. I love leadership. I wrote a book on leadership. I'm going to tell you about it here in about a minute. But let's understand that the kingdom and my allegiance to Christ has far more to do with leadership. It has to do with lordship. And it's a tedious process to transmit. And when you're in leadership, the demands of leadership, it's a very tedious process that we must go through in order to engraft the Word of God into our life. If it was fit for a king to hand write out large portions of the Bible by hand, keep it with him then, read it out loud every day, so that he would never think he's better than his fellow citizens or compromise the truth in the smallest way. So the only way to defeat arrogance and compromise is this tedious uh, 
endeavor with God's Word in your life. I just want to encourage you. I don't know how that lives out for you, but I have a journal this year, and I've been writing out chapters of the Bible by hand. Try to memorize Scripture, but I've, I've never taken time to write out entire, like it says it right here, but there's something about writing this out by hand. It's a powerful exercise. So I just want to encourage you, if it's good enough for kings, it's probably good enough for everyone in this room at any leadership level as well. Um, put that next slide. There it is. That's our beloved university. That's what it is every day, 11 o'clock, the great incubator of the kingdom in that room. And Kristen's probably in that picture. It's from a couple years ago. Uh, you know what's great about the school is, first of all, from the depth of my heart as a brand-new president, serving in this role. The stewardship of God's presence over that school is my primary job, uh, lead of my job description. I'm only the seventh uh, person to serve in this role in almost 90 years. Think about that, of the continuity. We've had uh, two of our general superintendents of the Assemblies of God, Tom Trask. We've had G. Raymond Carlson come through that great institution. It has watered the earth like no other school in the world. I, I believe that with all of my heart. I believe there's not another university situated in a city of fire and scholarship like this in all of the United States. If you can find it, come come and tell me where that is. There's only three schools left in downtowns anyway, us, Moody Bible College, and um, uh, King's College in New York that are fully accredited universities like North Central. But it has become a very, very special season. I just heard that we're 268, not applications, not interest cards, but applications ahead of this day last year. We've accepted over 100 more freshmen on this day than we did on this day last year. It is just becoming a very, very exciting place. There's tremendous interest leaning in all over the United States. Uh, we were just pleased to announce Rich and Robin Wilkerson as our new chancellors of the university. And there's just a great grace and momentum upon the school. Thank you for giving, giving, giving the way you do. We just announced uh, that we're doing something unique of all the schools in America um, that are AGWM, our Assemblies of God, World Mission Families. Um, most of them get discounts at our schools, but the Lord spoke to me last summer uh, before I started um, that we were to take it a different level and that all of our AGWM dependent children around the world can now attend North Central University with, for free tuition. Now, here's what that means, friends. We have several of our missionary families who've been contemplating coming home after 20 years because they've got five kids and college is, is off the radar for their kids. And um, when we made this announcement last Christmas worldwide, you should have been on campus in September when all of the parents, we usually get five of those kids. We have over 20 this year. I've got to raise about $250,000 just for these missionary kids scholarships. But here's, here's and your giving, your giving helps that even today. Um, but you should have been there when these parents dropped from all over the world, flew home to drop their kids off. They're sobbing, not, not tearing. They were sobbing in our presence saying, you don't understand. 25 years ago when we went to Africa or went to China, when we went to this part of the world, the Lord said he would take care of our family. We had no way to do college. We got five kids. We were going to have to leave the mission field. This announcement is keeping our family on the mission field undistracted. 
and it was like a miracle for these families. So when you give, you're helping not just uh, um, the university as a whole, but you're helping specifically the AGWM kids uh, get to college, and their parents are in unique situations all over the world. And I just want to say thank you very much for your love. The, the school's doing great, fully online this coming September all over the world. Um, you can get your master's degree, numerous undergraduate degrees online. The residential experience is second to none. Thank you for praying and for loving our school the way you have all these many years. All righty. Let's get ready for Genesis 12 here. But what we're going to do is we're going to lead into this. I want to talk about Abram for a few moments and the leadership life of Abram. Um, even if those that are not in formal or even informal leadership roles, responsibility roles, there's going to be something, I think, very powerful for your heart in this teaching this morning. Um, but how many of you work in a tough place? You work, you work, you work for a tough person. Now, any of the pastors on staff here, uh, you, you, I'm looking for those hands right now. Um, but now how many of you work in a, a tough place? How many of you actually work for the Antichrist? The Antichrist is your boss. Anybody in a setting where the Antichrist is your boss? You don't work for the Antichrist because I did at one time. I know who he is. I know where he lives. He owns a restaurant in Santa Cruz, California. Um, I know his name. I was a busboy in the Antichrist restaurant. He's going to be revealed shortly to the earth. I know his name. I'm just waiting for the revelation because he's the meanest human I have ever met in my life. In all of my adult ministry life, that time at Castagnola's restaurant for this person has informed me of the world outside of the local church, meaning that we have folks who come to church every Sunday who work in environments like that how do you manifest your faith? How do you bring kingdom meaning and value into the workplace? How do you witness? How do you share? How do you live your life uh, before people that are adversarial to everything that you believe? Because most of our folks around the country sitting in our Assembly of God churches, many of them work in environments where they're the only ones. They lead teams. They're on teams. So I had a, uh, a kind of a dream in my heart a few years ago as a pastor, and this originally started as simply a resource to our church. And I put together, I had a guy tell me, hey, can I use your message in my leadership meeting tomorrow at work? And I said, absolutely. So he wrote me on Facebook. I wrote him back on Facebook. Here's what I said. He goes, how'd you say that this morning? Here's how I said it. Other people ju jumped in. Hey, can I use that? Can I use that? And it got me thinking that there really is a craving in the hearts of the marketplace for people to utilize the stuff that we give away freely in churches to one another from the kingdom, but written in such a way that it could be crafted and handed and delivered to them in a way that would start a relationship, even if you, you, you're you on a team and you work in, uh, for managers and leaders and owners who know nothing about your faith, or if you lead teams, or if you're on teams, uh, a way to utilize this resource. So that grew into a self-published book about two years ago on CreateSpace called The Language of Influence, and it just had hundreds of leadership discussion starters, little, almost little poems, little one-liners that were designed to bring conversation that I said, listen, take this to work, give it to your teams, give it to your boss. It became a powerful, almost like a leadership track that started leading to incredible conversations of, 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 of uh, evangelism in the kingdom with the most adversarial people uh, that I go, I, they go, I've worked for 20 years for this person. They hate everything I, I believe. That book created 
a conduit in a way that I never had before. So it, it went really well for about a year and a half. Got reports. The vice president of Apple Computer, uh, Dan Riccio, is using it for all the Apple execs. I'm getting a picture from the Pentagon of this leadership circle with this man named Colonel William West, who says, he goes, there's 30 of us in the Pentagon that are using this book, sports teams, state legislators, cops, teachers. People are giving him out to, to 500 police officers in Portland, 500 police officers in Charlotte, North Carolina. Last summer, I got a phone call from a publisher in New York with Kensington Press. Uh, they're part of Random House. And so what they've done is they've taken the book and they are re-releasing uh, re uh, it next week. Uh, but they gave me some pre-copies. I think I've only got 50 of them that are here. And it's a corporate gift book on leadership that you give to your teams, your boss, and it's just filled with... There's, there's my order of service with the time I need to be done, so we got to make certain I keep that right there. Um, but it's a, it's a way to give it to people at work. I want to use about 90 seconds to, first of all, lift your leadership uh, a little bit as it leads into Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 here. So here's about seven things that I deeply believe that are great discussion starters with your teams uh, at work with your boss. Um, and he so here's number one. Let's do these real fast. Um, Oh, let's go back if we can. Is there right there? Okay, here we go. Gratitude. Gratitude is the fastest way to reorganize your emotions. You do know that. Many people are in a free fall with an inability to cope with stress. And the way to arrest that free fall of emotions is always through the power of gratitude. Being thankful does something to the psyche. It does something to the heart. Um, so my hope, when I dialogue with my teammates about this at North Central University, we talk a lot about gratitude. We frame all of our leadership settings, all of our planning, all of our problem solving is always framed in a context of gratitude first. It builds the atmosphere because you have to pass through atmosphere to get to culture. You can't leap right to culture. Atmosphere comes first. Gratitude, personally, is the fastest way for me to reorganize my emotions. Here's, here's another one for you. Number two, do you know that great leaders see everyone in the room? Poor leaders only notice those who notice them. We, this is an epidemic with young leaders. They will talk to this person until someone more interesting enters the room. Jesus did not operate this way. Jesus did not try to leverage his network in every setting. He wasn't simply leaning into the powerful and to the accomplished because he wanted to accomplish or meet their networks. What makes us kingdom leaders and what really separates great teams from average teams, churches, work environments, is our capacity to notice everyone that's in the room. If we only respond to the people who respond to us, we're going to miss out on many, many dynamic gifted people who are maybe in a state of brokenness or they're in a bad mood and they're not so noticeable when they meet you and you've missed them in your life because you're only noticing the people that notice you. Here's a third one for you real quick. Do you know that building a new relationship is good? Restoring a broken one is better. Great conversation to have at work. So again, this is an epidemic because it's easy to delete and unfriend people. It's easy for you to move on from people quickly in this culture through, through digital expression. If, if heaven had a newspaper, there would be two stories on the front page. The virgin birth of Jesus and the resurrection, the body resurrection of, his, of, of him from the grave. Guess which one would be the headline? 
The resurrection from the dead is a bigger headline than the virgin birth. Virgin birth, birthing something new, is a wonderful thing. In leadership, it's great to come up with a new idea. But something coming back from the dead has a bigger emotional impact. That's why you have to train leaders how to restore broken relationships or they will never be able to protect the progress of their life. You'll keep climbing the mountain and you will slide back down. Because you have to gain the skill set of being able to restore things that are broken, not simply build experiences with things that are constantly new. Here's another one for you real fast. Do you know that nobody's success is robbing your potential? This is a great conversation to have at work with your teams. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. We have an epidemic, again, of people blocking influence because they're afraid that their success is going to somehow rob uh, their own personal potential. Nothing could be further from the truth. Can you imagine two little sailboats in the San Francisco Harbor, the first sailboat's bobbing up and down. Another sailboat goes by at full speed. Can you imagine the little boat going nowhere, yelling at the other boat, hey, stop stealing my wind. That boat would probably say, put your sail up. There's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail more than one ship. Well, friends, as believers, we fall prey to this false thinking. Do you know in the upper room, it was marked by fire, but it was also marked by wind. Do you know that on the day of Pentecost, the way the kingdom of God is designed and released on this earth, that there's plenty of wind coming from the upper room, from the power of the Spirit to flourish every life, every leader, every church, every university that leans into him. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. Another church's success in Aberdeen is not robbing the potential of this church. Another university is not robbing the potential of my church. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. We don't operate with scarcity. We operate with the idea of abundance. And so this is a tremendous conversation to have with your teams at work. I think there's one more. It says here, okay, go past that one if you will. Here's one. The secret to longevity is simple. Don't self-destruct. Friends, you'll be shocked at the sustainability of your life, your teams, your coworkers. Uh, if, first of all, the Bible's implicit. You can't take me out. The devil can't take me out. I take myself out. I self-destruct, friends. Um, I don't destruct because you seek to destroy me. The Lord is implicit in his word about this. So if you will remove self-destructive behaviors, teams, leaders, again, a fascinating conversation to have with the folks around you. Now, Genesis 12, 1 says this. Here we go. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. The Lord said, leave your native country, your relatives. How many would love a word from the Lord to leave your relatives? Uh, no, that's not what that is teaching us. Some people read that and say, hey, does that mean I can tell my relatives to leave? I, I really like this text right here. No. When there's a prophecy in Scripture that is implicit to the individual, there's a principle underlying that drives that teaching. So even though something was applicable only to Abram, there's a principle behind the prophecy. The principle is that following the Lord costs you something significant in this life. It will cost you something significant. For Abram, who was being prepared as the father of faith throughout all of time, he was asked to leave all of the 
pieces, all of his default mechanisms for being able to secure his future uh, through natural means, which was the land, the territory, the inheritance of his earthly father. He was asked, put all that aside. I want you to be a model of faith that you step out based on a promise that you believe that what is spoken is as true as what is historically factual, which we could get into really what faith is based on, the evidence of things hoped for, things unseen. Here's Abram modeling that. So the Lord said, I want you to leave everything that is your future security. I want you to go into this new place. I want you to leave relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. So this is his instruction. So chapter 13 is really chapter 1 of Abram's leadership life. Let's read what happens in chapter 13. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we're close relatives. Now wait a minute, I thought the Lord said to leave your relatives. He did. So Abram, though, brought a nephew. He obeyed 98%, 99% of everything the Lord said to him. But again, the kingdom of God is not based on preponderance or leadership, it's based on lordship. So here, Abram does almost everything the Lord said, but he brings a relative. Now I credit Abram because he recognizes in chapter one of his leadership life that he has screwed up. Something's out of alignment. He realizes the frustration between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of his own uh, flock are fighting. And there's frustration going on. And he connects the frustration to his disobedience. He's not blaming the devil. He's not blaming people. Friends, you know what frustration is? Frustration is like an early warning sign from God that something is out of alignment. You know when you see the weather report and the green Doppler cloud is coming? He said rain's coming. They can kind of show what's approaching. Frustration operates just like that. Frustration is an alert that something's out of alignment and something needs to be amended or fixed or correction or judgment is on the way. You have to listen to frustration in life. It's God's mercy at work alerting us. Now, Abram recognized that he had royally messed up right off the bat in his life. He has this great promise over his life, but he screwed up. So now he... He gets a gold medal for recognizing the problem and identifying the source of the problem. But he defaults to a modern theology that still plagues the church today. What do we do when we make a big mistake early in life? What do we do when we sin and mess up early, knowing that God had shown us a better way and we chose the lesser way? He showed us the better tree. We chose the lesser tree. And now we're paying for it in chapter one of our life. Abram defaults to a thinking, much like many in our churches default to this thinking. Here it is. He tells Lot, take your choice of the land. If you want left, then all go to the right. If you want right, then all go left. Basically, Abram is saying, I just gotta cut my losses and move on. How many of us think that way when we fail? I can't believe I did that. Ugh! All I can do now is cut my losses and move on. 
And he deeply believes, to his credit, this is how he's repenting of his sin. He's getting his life right. He's getting his decision-making apparatus correct. He's amending his steps. He's separating from Lot, a relative that he was told not to bring. Now things aren't working. He realizes why they're not working, and he fixes it. But he believes, he believes that from this point forward, his best shot is to live a half-life. I only get to be 50% of what God created me to be from this point forward. If we interviewed the average American Christian, I would say half of almost every church people have traces of this false theology. They are, they are clean because they've repented, but they're defeated, and they're living in condemnation. Condemnation tells you that because of past sin, you only get to be half of what God created you to be. You only get to become, you get a 50% life, a 50 life. Really less than 50 because Lot chose the better valley, the more fertile valley, so his agricultural yield would be greater than Abram's. So Abram really was going to have maybe a 40% life. How do you do that every day for the rest of your life? You've been told that you're going to be the father of a great nation. That your offspring are going to outnumber the stars and the sand on the shore. How do you live under that possibility knowing you only get to be half of what you could have been? What a horrible way to live the rest of your life. But Abram, to his credit, he loves the Lord. He realized he disobeyed God. The best he can do is cut his losses and move on and have half the life that he hoped or, he, or, or that was promised to him. And there he is. And here's what the Lord says to him. It says, from that spot there, after Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, look up. I think it's the two most important words in the Old Testament. Look up. Why did he tell Abram to look up? Because Abram was looking down. He was clean. He repented, but he was defeated. He believed that he had no confidence, authority, or place to look up. And the Lord said to Abram, look up. Now, friends, I can't make you look up. Your pastors cannot make you look up. Your spouse cannot make you look up. Nobody on this earth can make you look up. Only you can look up. When you encounter the voice, the wooing, the love of God coming from some other place than where you're looking now, look up. And so Abram chose to look up. He was right with God, but he wasn't walking in faith. He was right with God, but there was no joy. He was right with God, but there was no relationship. There was no optimism. There was no anticipation. There was no restoration. He was looking down. My dad was a classic case of this. My dad died at age 64. I love my dad. Is there a piano player that comes to the platform during the preacher's time at the end? I just want to give the people hope. You know, when, you, when they see the musician, they feel hope. Uh, that, okay, good, good. This guy knows 
Uh, so if there's a piano player, that would be great. It doesn't mean, I, it doesn't mean anything other than you have hope that, there's, that I'm coming towards them. They're coming. Now watch this. My dad died at 64 of a drug overdose. My dad died of a drug overdose from a drug you can't buy it on the street, nor can you buy it over the counter. He died from a drug that his own body produced. God made this miracle of the mind in the back of the brain. There's a release in a time of crisis of glucocorticoid or cortisol that gets released from the back of the brain. It shoots through your body instantly when you're in crisis. Like the shower, when you turn on to the shower head to the tile, that fast is how fast it goes through your body. And it happens in times of crisis because God designed the human body to find this supernatural capacity when they're being chased by the lion. So when the lion is chasing us, we have this ability to outrun the lion because of this drug that's pouring through our bodies. It suspends your sleep, it suspends your need to eat, it suspends everything, your growth. Because everything is just honed in on giving you the burst to outrun the lion. Now, when you're up on the rock and you've outrun the lion, God's amazing human mind that he created turns it off. Your body regulates. You're hungry. You want to sleep. You can grow. But when you're in a state of crisis, that turns on. That's what gives you this burst. Now, here's the problem. As, as miraculous as the mind is, it can't tell the difference between an imaginary lion and a real lion. So if something makes you worried or you're in crisis, imaginary or real, your brain stays on. And that glucocorticoid pours through your body over a lifetime. My dad, because of his upbringing, was very tough. He lived and he was chased by the imaginary lion his whole life. He was always worried, lived in a state of worry his whole life, anxiety, panic his whole life. That gift became the curse because that cortisol became the plaque that filled his heart that caused him to have congestive heart failure. The doctor looked me in the eye and said, your dad died of stress. Your dad died of stress. I didn't know how stress kills you, but I do know now how stress kills a human being. So what happened is, is this amazing miracle of, of my dad who got his life right, but he never looked up. When the Lord told Abram to look up, Abram looked up and the Lord said this, Behold, north, south, east, and west, I'm giving you all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants. Go and walk through the land in every direction. Ten seconds ago, Abram, you thought life was right or left. You were cutting your losses. You had one direction. Look up. Your heart is right. You've repented. But look up. I'm giving you north, south, east, and west. This is not a Tony Robbins pep talk, friends. This is the Bible telling us. This is the Bible showing us how condemnation works in a human being, keeping them clean but defeated. And the Lord wants you to look up. Because he said, I'm giving you a four dimension. I'm giving you every direction, not one direction. I'm giving you north, south, east, and west. I'm giving you more than you ever thought possible even before you failed me in chapter one. This is the mystery. This is the beauty. This is why the kingdom of God and the message of the gospel is so powerful and irresistible. This is the good news. 
that he takes us as his children even after we sin and fail. But as long as we look down and we refuse to look up, we're going to believe that all we have left is to cut our losses. You may have been right with God but defeated for the last 40 years of your life because the devil tells you because of that sin you committed, that mistake that you made early on, you're going to pay for this forever. It doesn't mean that we don't walk with the treasure of our testimony, but the testimony is not a trigger for depression. The testimony, Jacob's limp was a treasure, not a trigger that led him to defeat. So yes, we do pay prices because of sin. There are losses that we talk about, but in a redemptive way. We're like Moses. We go through the wilderness. It almost kills us. We're going through the wilderness alone. I love the original Charlton Heston one. He's almost to the other side. He gets to the other side. It nearly killed him. And the Lord's there, and he says, Hey, Moses, welcome to the other side of what almost killed you. Take a deep breath. Get refreshed. Because I need you to go back and do it again. Huh? I need you to go back in the back of the line. I need you to walk this same dirt twice. The first time you walk it is where you found me. Nearly killed you. If you go through something that almost kills you, put a post-it note on your forehead and write, I'm probably going to do this again. Because the second time you walk through it, though, you're leading people across the dirt that you've already traveled. Oh, I've already been through this. Trust me. Trust me. I've walked here before. I know what's, I know what's up. Whatever you've gone through is to serve those now going through. That's the most simplest way to explain the gospel and the hope. That's why we look up. I'd like to pray before your pastor comes. Could we stand across this room? I know he'll probably have you seated again, but could we just stand across the room? It's been a total joy to be here today. I hope that we have a long, long friendship and relationship between Minneapolis and Aberdeen. Please come by out there. See Karen and I. I think we got about 50 of these resources. Again, for your teams, your kids, it's Christmas. People you work with, you work for, it's a great gift. But we want to just give you a hug today and tell you we love you. We miss pastoring so much, so much. Being here today is just like, it's like honey to us to be back in a local church that is so much like ours that we left. It's a beautiful, powerful thing that God is doing in this community. But you need to keep looking up. See, Pastor, this really, this word was for me. Can we close our eyes? When something is prophetic, it's first of all, it's piercing. It's personal. And the hope of the Lord when it's prophetic is that it, it becomes permanent. Forget the preacher, but don't forget this passage from Genesis 12 and 13. Say, Pastor, I, I battle this. I feel like I only get to be half of what I really could have been because of what I did. That lie is forever defeated. God is giving you north, south, east, and west. If you repent and if you walk by faith. You say, Pastor, this word was for me. Would you just put a hand up high? Just put a hand up high. Oh, my. Thank you, Lord. Keep it up there. Lord, I just received this message today for my life, this teaching for my life. 
We love you. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Lord, I commit my life from this moment forward, Lord, to break free from the plague of condemnation, Lord, in my life of looking down. And Lord, I will look up, Lord. I will respond to your call. I'm going to respond to your voice. I'm going to worship by looking up. I'm going to read my word with the attitude of looking up, God. I'm going to approach my day with the attitude of looking up, Lord. You have north, south, east, and west. Lord, let this congregation be marked by a north, south, east, and west vision. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. God bless you, Pastor. Would you come? Thank you so much for letting me share my heart today. If you would just remain standing for just a, a moment. And what I will not do is I will not re-preach the message, but I, I need to add something. I believe that God has spoken to so many of you. I didn't turn around and see how many hands were raised. But I believe that this word, Genesis 13, 14, some of you need to mark it, write it down, because you're going to need to go back to it. Because here's the thing, the enemy is going to try and take you to look down. The enemy is going to, he knows your buttons, he knows what has been effective before, and you need to, you need to go back to this and say, no, I'm going to look up. And I, I know the only one who can do this for me, who can help me. And you're going to need to go back to that. Some of you may need to write this text down. Do write down. You don't have to read, write down the whole Pentateuch, but write down this one verse and put it in a, prom, a prominent place. And like, like God did to Abram so many thousands of years ago, he's going to do to you again. You're going to be, need to be reminded to look up. To look up. Not self-help. This is God help. Look up. Look up. Hallelujah. You may be seated for a few moments. This, this, this morning I shared with you the difference that North Central University had on my life. I am so grateful for our schools. I am so grateful for our colleges. I am so grateful for the privilege that we have to partner with our colleges and universities. As I shared earlier, uh, ushers, why don't you go ahead and make your way up here. As I shared earlier, the every month we give towards both Trinity and North Central. Some months ago, President Hagan contacted me and asked me if, if he could come, and I said, by all means. This is the first time. I've been here for a lot of years. This is the first time we've had a representative from North Central, and I'm so very grateful we got the president and his wife. And they came, and I wanted them to share what God is doing there and also to share a word from the word for you, and, and he did that this morning. We want to receive an offering this morning. You heard about the missionary kids if I can just add, my wife was a missionary kid many years ago, and one of the reasons why she went to North Central was because of a scholarship. It wasn't a scholarship as good as this, but that's one of the reasons why. Listen, I'm very grateful that God directed her to North Central because that's where we met. But I'm excited about what's going to happen in the coming years as God directs more young people to prepare for life and ministry at North Central because of this scholarship. This morning, we're going to receive just this one offering.
And unless you designate it otherwise, this entire offering is going to go towards the ministry of North Central. If you have that check or that offering, and I think that there are some, some ways, yeah, there are ways that you can give there. I've, I've come prepared, and, and, uh, and I, uh, I, have it, I just wrote out North Central University there in that where it says other, uh, that little box there, North Central University, or just NCU. And, uh, and we, want to, we want to give this entire offering. I want to read one verse. I actually wrote out a text, a, a verse on the back of my envelope I was praying this morning. And, and this is, this is the, the, the verse that I felt led to the lead on. We, your people, in, are the sheep of your pasture. will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. To all generations. There's another generation coming up that God is preparing. He's calling them. And then he's directing them to North Central. And some are going to be there in part because we gave today. And so to all generations, we want generations. We, uh, Jesus may return very soon, but it may be a very long time. But God is raising up people to reach people around this world. And he's using North Central. He's using Trinity. He's using many of our colleges. He's using so many different places. And he's using you. So if you have that, if you're ready to give, take that in your hand. Let's pray over this. Jesus, we are grateful. And I, I pray that our, our gratitude would, would rearrange our are the, the, the things that are within us, that, that, that it will rearrange and, and reset our, our attitudes, Lord. We give with gratitude for all that you have done. We thank you for the, the lives that have been changed in the past. We thank you, Lord, for the people that have been prepared in the past and right now. But, Lord, we commit this offering because we believe that you're going to call other young people to, to North Central and you're going to use them. So we give, Lord, so that, so that some will come and, and, and their lives will be changed and they will go out and change this world. To every generation, we pray. We thank you. We ask your blessing upon this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. Dr. Hagen, would you join me? Uh, uh, almost Dr. Hagen. He's about to finish his doctorate. President Hagen, would you join me here on the platform again? And uh, we want to pray with you. I believe your wife is already in the in the entryway there, and, uh, and we're, going to, uh, we're going to pray over you. I would like a couple people to join me here on the platform. I, I, would, like, I would like my wife, Joni, would you join me here? Kristen, you're a graduate of North Central. You join me here on the platform as well. Amy Camp, is Amy here? She's slipped out. She's in back. I wanted her here, but she's not. She slipped out right now. Amy went there. Is there anyone here else here that went to North Central? Anyone else? Stan, Stan, would you? Stan, would you? Would you tell uh, Karen uh, have her come in? And we want to pray as well. Thank you for giving. Continue to continue to give. David, yeah, David, you went to North Central. Come on up here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, that's where you and Amy met. Scott was his pastor a long time ago. Yeah, he's taller now. So, anyone else that went to North Central? Come on up here. Come on up here. We want to pray with you. We like to. Uh, we like to. To pray over. You know, we we have missionaries. We support many missionaries, 
and, uh, and we pray over them. And these are God's servants for this place and for this time. He's the seventh president of North Central. There may be an eighth, ninth, and tenth. We don't know that. But right now, God has called them here. And so would you stand one more time, please? And would you extend your hand? Let's pray for these servants. The, the things that they face are, are, are great, but our God is greater. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for using these servants here today. We thank you, Lord, that you're going to use them tomorrow as they return today to Minneapolis. I pray that you will give them favor, that you will give them anointing, that you will give them supply, that you will give them encouragement, that you will lift their heads when they feel downcast. I pray, Jesus, that you would give them direction, uh, that you would bless their leadership, that, that you would, would uh, provide all that, that, that is needed there. We thank you, Lord, again for North Central, for all that it has meant. We thank you for its leaders. So your favor and your blessing upon them, we thank you. We love you, Lord. And now, Lord, as we make our way out of this place, we pray that we will go in the power of your Holy Spirit, that we will be a church, a body of believers whose heads are lifted up, whose spirits are strong in you, whose focus is upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and who also sees the world around them. Lord, what a task we have. What a joyous task it is. It's challenging. It's arduous at times. But Lord, use us for your glory to reach this world around us. We love you. We praise you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you this morning. Greet these folks in the foyer. They're going to be in the foyer. Greet each other. God bless you richly this morning.